1: A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and
2: conditions 18 plus. It's
0: six ish on Sunday night. Welcome to the Share Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only. KX 93.5. Tonight I'm going to talk about something that's close to my heart and fears about the way the world is going, and that's that nobody seems on the case about these antitrust laws that are essential to democracy, cartel laws that we've had on the books forever, where a company can't get so big that it basically can dictate everything in our lives. It's very anti-democratic, very totalitarian to ignore such laws, but it seems to be happening. Amazon is obviously a case in question. It's buying up food stores, publishing houses, basically almost any commercial enterprise. And though it's not overtly doing harm as of now, which is one of the criteria for antitrust laws, that a company that gets really large has to have the customer's welfare in mind. At some point, that could change because once something becomes powerful, it can do whatever it likes. What's that adage about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. And what's happening, as we know it happened in the publishing world first with Amazon, is it put a lot of little local bookstores out of business because it sold books more cheaply and more conveniently and more instantaneously. But there's a flip side to that, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate and present that flip side on tonight's cakes 935s The Share-In-Hour. I'm using an interview that was done for the Authors Guild by the Director of Public Programs at the New York Public Library, Paul Holdengraver, with a couple of authors, Jonathan Taplin... And Franklin Foer, Jonathan Taplin, is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. So you can tell he's definitely partisan. And Franklin Foer is the author of World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Both of them obviously have written about the unprecedented power and influence that the major internet platforms such as Google, Facebook and Amazon exert on our political, economic and cultural lives. We don't think so much about the cultural aspect, but if you can control the written word, you can definitely control culture. There have been oppressive regimes around the world and in times of war that have done exactly that and thereby were more able to control people's minds with what they wanted to feed into those minds. When Franklin Foer was publishing his book, Amazon happened to be in the middle of renegotiating its e-book contract with Hatchet, or Ashet, the French publishing giant. Frank had written a book with Ashet and... Amazon kept asking more and more out of the publisher. They wanted to set the price for the ebook and extract all these concessions from them. And Hachette at some point said, OK, enough, we can't give you any more. At that point, Amazon said, you know what, we're going to strip the buy button from all Hachette books on our site. If you want to search for a Hachette book, we're going to redirect you to a Simon & Schuster book. So you can see how dangerous that can be, and this is an actual case that illustrates it. Frank Fuhr considers it an assault on reading, contemplation, and thinking by these companies. Plus, there's a war on for one or other of them to get the most of our attention. After what happened with Hachette and Amazon, publishers went to the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, and they said, this kind of looks like a monopoly bullying the producers who are dependent on the monopoly. And they said they were just met with blank stares. The regulators just didn't get it. So Frank Floor said he decided that he needed to articulate the problem in a much more coherent way so that people could be guided towards solutions. He wrote an article for The New Republic that was called Amazon Must Be Stopped. And two weeks later, Amazon responded, Dear New Republic, because of your cover story about Amazon we've decided that we're no longer going to advertise with you and we're pulling the campaign that we're running next week. Sincerely, Team Amazon, please confirm receipt of this email. Frank, 4 thought, you just proved my point. Thank you. When you're dependent on a certain powerful platform, you become more reluctant to criticise that platform. And these companies now occupy such an outsized role in our individual lives, in our democracy, in the future of our species, in the way their technologies are actually now merging with us in a very physical sort of way, as well as a mental sort of way, that it's crucial that we are able to have an open and honest conversation about that and about what it is as a species and a democracy and an individual that we feel we must preserve and protect as we go through the process of merging with these machines, and let's face it, merging with the companies that operate and are in charge of these machines. Full disclosure, Franklin Furr had been the editor of the New Republic at one point. He'd been associated with it since he was 25 years old. He said, and one day, a guy called Chris Hughes, who was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard and co-founder of Facebook, walked into the New Republic offices and said, look, I'm committed to serious things. I have deep pockets that I'm willing to spend as evidence of my commitment. And I will help you navigate your way through this digital age with dignity because I founded social media. First said, that seemed to me an incredible opportunity. And it was initially, it was really an exhilarating experience. And there was a lot I loved about working with him. But in the end, he quite rightly said, I own this magazine as a profit-making vehicle now, and we need to produce more revenue. And the way we can produce more revenue is by producing journalism that flourishes on Facebook. He was just reflecting the zeitgeist, the realities of the news business today, which has grown highly dependent on Facebook for its financial viability. So I try to do my best work within those confines because we all need to make compromises, right? It seems to me most of media has made a compromise that's not too dissimilar from a Hollywood studio, where you sometimes have to produce popcorn flicks to be able to fund the actual Oscar contenders, and so I did my best to try to adjust to this world, and in fact kind of became addicted to data and analytics, and watching pieces become more popular, and I desperately wanted to win in this game, but in the end it didn't work out for me. I got a phone call from a colleague and he said, you know what? There's some other guy walking around New York City right now who says he's about to become the editor of the New Republic and he's talking to people about jobs. And I thought, this is probably a good moment to quit. And so, Thor says, I resigned and the surprising thing happened to me, which is that quite a few other people on the staff of the magazine ended up resigning too. It became kind of an object lesson in media. Listen, all these stories are always inherently complicated, and they can't be simplified into a straight morality tale. But I think a lot of media was grappling with the same questions that we were, which are these bigger questions about dependence on Facebook and Google, and the ways in which journalism was making sacrifices in order to adapt to the realities of this new world. Jonathan Taplin adds, I'm quoting now, by the way, from an article in the Authors Guild where... Authors Franklin Foer and Jonathan Taplin are expressing their concern for how much our culture has become reliant on these media giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon, that are basically taking over every aspect of our commercial lives and also our cultural lives. They're eating up publications as well, as food supply stores and all sorts of other commercial establishments. And it's frightening them, as it does me, I have to say. I'm Sharon James. This is The Sharon Hour on KX935. So Jonathan Taplin tells of a bunch of kids coming out of Stanford in the late 80s and other similar universities, like Peter Theo and Larry Page, who had a complete libertarian point of view on life. And that was that government was always the problem. They'd been schooled on Ayn Rand. So there was always this great entrepreneur who's weighed down by the mob, the demos, and us. Peter Thiel was quoted as saying, I no longer believe that democracy and capitalism are compatible. And he started PayPal. Out of PayPal, grew a thing called the PayPal Mafia, which consists of a lot of people who now run most of the big companies in Silicon Valley. And there were four basic rules he clung to One was no regulation on this new form. Another was no taxes. So Amazon was able to sell books with no sales tax and put 4,000 independent bookstores out of business. No copyright. So YouTube goes to the music business and says, your content is going to be on YouTube whether you want it to or not. You just have to decide whether you want a little bit of advertising money to go along with it. And it'll just be a little or nothing. And finally, he said, competition is for losers. The only good form in a business is winner takes all. In other words, you only need one search engine, one e-commerce giant that sells you everything, and eventually one social network. It had two billion people. You don't need a second one. And so instead of a kind of decentralized network that the Stuart Brands and Tim Berners-Lee imagined when they started the internet, it became this incredibly centralized system in which three companies, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, dominate everything. Tapman said, Last year, Facebook and Google took 88% of all advertising revenues online. Google has 91% market share. Wow, eh? You are tuned to the Sharon hour with me, Sharon James, on Lagunas KX935. Talking tonight about antitrust laws. That's where companies aren't supposed to become monopolies so that they're the Goliaths and we're the Davids and we have absolutely no power in relation to them. But these antitrust laws aren't being properly enforced by anyone. In fact, they're being enforced even by the Supreme Court in the wrong way. Supreme Court is letting all sorts of huge companies get away with murder, including insisting when they have a so-called contract with us, which just means that we're using their services and they're offering them to us. There's most companies we do business with on the internet requiring us to do arbitration instead of lawsuits. And that means if we have any complaint against them, they can deny us class action suits. So obviously we can't afford to sue them. They can elect the arbitrator who obviously wants to keep in well with them because they're the ones that have all the lawsuits, not you and I. And it's incredibly weighted toward the corporation. I thought nobody was on the case. But in fact, I've heard of a couple of examples where the Supreme Court is on the case and they rule in favor of the huge corporation. So we've really reached, I think, a sort of crisis in our democratic process here and with the Supreme Court going more in the way of supporting gazillionaires and less in the way of protecting the little person, it's something we should all be very, very aware of. I've been quoting from this article in the Authors Guild, where the program's director of the New York Public Library has interviewed a couple of authors who've written books alerting us of what's going on with antitrust, namely Frank Fur. With his book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, and Jonathan Taplin, his book is Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. Not exactly snappy titles, but (laughs) it shows you that they have a very partisan view on this. They, of course, bring up the wealthy Koch brothers, huge Republican Party donors. They're worth 80 billion together. And they've just bought Time, Inc. for $500 million. Time publishes, obviously, the magazine Time. Also People, also Sports Illustrated, and dozens of others. Jeff Bezos, who runs Amazon, owns the Washington Post. And this may seem benign, but it's not. They're basically controlling a huge amount of our reading material about what's going on in the world. I mean it's not like we're reading magazines much anymore but we are still reading them. These people already have the internet covered one way or the other. There's going to come a time when we forget that they're behind these publications and that's how democracies fail when our news media is completely controlled by people who have their own commercial interests. I mean if Amazon does get into trouble for antitrust laws I think the Washington Post is going to go all out against them since it's owned by the Amazon owner and the Washington Post was a very serious newspaper and still is. People like Steve Bannon and Fox News work very hard to tell us that human curators have been very prejudiced against conservative news, which may be true. But eventually Mark Zuckerberg took the human creators out of the trending topics algorithms and just let the computer do it. So no wonder fake news happens and you hear that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. The computer doesn't know the difference. Jeff Bezos once quipped that his team should approach small publishers the way a cheetah would pursue a gazelle. So these little publications that can't really compete with the big ones except for their integrity, maybe, are being either absorbed into the mainstream, which involves huge corporate owners, or being bought so they can be put out of business. That happens quite often. I'm sure you've experienced buying something that works wonderfully and then suddenly you can't find it anymore, or its organic nature has been bred out of it. And the thing is, The whole point of antitrust laws was to allow competition and allow a smaller player to exist alongside the bigger player so that the bigger player didn't just destroy the competition so it could operate exactly as it wanted and nobody could do anything about it. There was nowhere else and to no one else that the consumer could turn. You're tuned to The Shower Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's kx nine three five. I'm harping on about monopolies and how we seem to be circumventing all those antitrust laws that were in place to stop monopolies and retain a democracy that survives on competition. The internet really blew up a lot of our regulations about commercial activities and really cultural ones too. And we haven't really caught up with regulating the way in which the internet controls our lives and how we are more and more getting controlled by the very few companies and individuals that control the internet. The Facebooks and Googles and Amazons and the singular individuals that run those that are now sitting on the thrones of our society. I've been quoting from an article in the Authors Guild Bulletin, where two authors, Franklin Foer and Jonathan Taplin, are talking to the program's director of the New York Public Library about their concerns for the way we are letting monopolistic companies run our society, keeping ourselves informed in the right way And not the way that social media sites are trying to steer our knowledge or even just deluge us with more partisan points of view is increasingly crucial. And libraries are important. Actual analog documentation, historical documents, historical theses are still important and libraries have these and we need to make sure they still go on operating the way they have and their sources of information that are still available to us. The choices that we have to face as citizens of our country and the world are so complicated that if we get poor quality information, we're not going to be well enough equipped to fulfill our civic obligations. What library symbolizes to these two authors is the veneration of scholarship and the idea that knowledge should be accessible, but not necessarily easy, that to attain true knowledge requires dedication and a certain amount of effort, along with the cultural idea that the mind is something that is constantly in need of cultivation, and that an individual is respected who has dedicated him or herself to a program of self-improvement of the mind. So Hopefully libraries will remain as these noble institutions and not get requisitioned by partisan forces or become frivolous institutions. Certainly university libraries dedicate themselves to retaining old important manuscripts as references for us all in terms of where we've been historically and what important people who have done some of our homework for us have had to say These two authors I've been quoting from, Franklin Foer and Jonathan Taplin, suggest that these libraries are islands of calm, where we can quietly do our research instead of having our attention constantly hijacked with what the people surveying us on the Internet want us to be concentrating on instead. So there's a use for some analog information in this digital age. Also, we can peruse it in private to a certain extent. Yes, it's regressive, but so are 60s vinyl records and they're coming back because we realized we'd lost some quality when we compressed our music into CDs or MP3s. Franklin Foer uses the metaphor of food. He says, we could have gone through another 60 years of stuffing ourselves full of Doritos and getting really obese unless there was a backlash, not necessarily a governmental one, where we decided that we were actually going to start to care about the things we ingest and thereby make certain sacrifices of efficiency and price in order to get food that we feel more virtuous about and that is probably just better for us and our quality of life. We still have reliable publications giving us truthful news, not fake news. The New York Times, The Washington Post, though now under Amazon's umbrella, who knows, But so far, they've committed themselves to investigative rigor and being antidotes to fake news. We need that because, to quote the Washington Post, democracy dies in the darkness. Facebook and Google insist they're not publishers per se, just a neutral platform in which everybody gets a chance to speak and anything goes. But... That's not exactly true because both Facebook and Google are curated to a large extent. And a lot of us these days get our news through organizations like Facebook and Google. You've probably realized by now that you, as an individual listener, get different information when you Google something than I do. I being Sharon James of Sharon Now on KX935. My Google search button leads me to information that's limited because it's personalized for me based on a computer algorithm that has taken all the data that I've been forced to feed into a lot of these programs in order to get out of them what I need and the things that I tend to log on to, my music choices, kinds of cultural areas I'm interested in, the tickets I buy to events, the books I purchase online, the clothes and home decorating items I buy online. And frankly, it's not even necessarily online. I pay by my credit card and suddenly I'm getting an email receipt confirming my payment. And all of these things, they're all forming a picture of me for advertisers who want to get my attention. Oh, look, we found something that might interest you. And along the way is this to steer you towards another product or piece of information, often more than gossip, more than even getting me to buy what they want me to buy, whether a thing or propaganda. It's messing with my mind. It's trying to get me agitated in a good way or a bad way, so I can be further manipulated into whatever that program wants me manipulated into. Okay, so these programs weren't started for nefarious purposes. They were genuinely started in order to be helpful to me as well as getting a little bit of my data for them. But things have grown out of proportion, and these companies have amassed a huge advantage through all the data they've collected and surveillance of my habits, your habits, that they've been able to do along the way. To quote William Gibson, cyber sci-fi writer... The most significant impacts of new technology are seldom anticipated by that technology's development. Nevertheless, if you can't see the trajectory, it doesn't mean that you can't try to tame and regulate it. So at some point it's harnessed for human purposes. Jonathan Tapton, whose book is titled Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, says... He uses a term in his book called technodeterminism, which is the sense that technologists think they know where they're going and where we should go, and at the same time think they don't really need to ask anybody's permission to go there. Apparently there's a service in China called Sesame Credit, and what it basically does is takes your credit score, then overlays your social media history, navigated by an AI, artificial intelligence bot built by Alibaba, So, if you went on another site in China and criticised the Chinese government, your social credit would then go down. Or if you played video games for four hours one afternoon instead of working, your social score would go down. You'd be marked as a slacker. There are 200 million Chinese willingly on this system, because young people use their social credit score on their dating apps to prove they're good patriotic citizens. Xi Jinping has said that every Chinese citizen should be on this service. Okay, so America ain't China, but what is frightening is there is no law in this country that protects your or my online data. Health records are supposedly protected, so are financial records supposedly. As for the other data, We don't have the kind of laws that have recently been enacted in, say, Europe. And we sort of need to. Because here's what we allow people like Google and Facebook to assert. That they're not publishers, and so they have no responsibility at all for what goes on their platforms. They're currently living under what's called a safe harbor law, which means you can't sue Google for anything. It's immune from any lawsuit for anything. Google even went so far in the past couple of months as to fight a law that simply required of them that if they linked to childhood sex trafficking sites, they could be held liable. They said, no, we want to be able to do that if we want to. Although they did eventually realize that was a bridge too far, and they've pulled their opposition to it. But consider that they were willing to say we have no responsibility for anything. Now... It's complicated, obviously, because do we need to make them responsible for certain things and not others? And how do we do that without too much government intervention and restrictive laws? Well, we should consider the laws that we've enacted for the monopolies that were granted in the past. AT&T is an example. I don't know if you've ever had dealings with AT&T, but goodness, have I trying to get them to correct a bill that was wrong was impossible for six months till I finally read an article about the chairman of AT&T, managed to figure out what his email would be by his name and wrote him an email saying, this is disgraceful and you actually have to provide a forum for people that are having problems, which you don't. There's no complaint department that I could find. There's no person to write to that is published. So I'm writing to you and you need to correct it. And I eventually did get an email back from an assistant in the chairman's office. And eventually my problem got corrected. But they certainly didn't offer any solutions because they didn't have to. Because they have a monopoly in the area in which I have a home. There is no other satisfactory telephone service. Plus now they're also trying to get monopoly on TV cable. But at least when handing these utility companies a monopoly for a certain area, the government said, if we allow you that concentration of power, what we want in return is you have to license every patent you own for free to every other company in America. That was in the 50s with AT&T, and out of that came the transistor, the laser, the semiconductor, the satellite system, the cellular system, and the solar cell along with companies like Texas Instruments, Motorola, Fairchild Semiconductor, Hewlett-Packard, and eventually Intel and Comsec. And basically most of what we now call Silicon Valley came out of antitrust decisions. So we need that kind of regulation. However, in today's world, corporations like AT&T are being allowed to get dangerously powerful with the support of big government, even the Supreme Court. And this is what is very alarming and why I'm getting political on tonight's KX935. The shareer now with me, Sharon James. It's getting so these corporations are allowed to write into their contracts with us. And we all have contracts with companies like AT&T, where We agree to certain stipulations in return for them giving us certain services we need. Something relatively new is happening, and that is these huge companies are requiring us to commit to arbitration rather than lawsuits if they default on any aspect of our mutual contract. And that's really sort of anti-American, even though I'm not a great one for litigiousness. There are occasions where we have been so mistreated that our only recourse is a lawsuit and or the threat of one being sizable in actual damage and reputation to a huge corporation. And arbitration can have some unequal, undemocratic aspects to it, as you're going to hear I want to introduce you here to two people who are importantly opening the lid on antitrust stuff and its current abuses. One is a recent law student from Yale Law who's written a paper on antitrust laws and monopolies that is actually a bestseller in the legal treatise world. She is Lena Kahn, and you're going to be hearing a lot about her as well as a little from her tonight. And the other is Sam Seder who runs a podcast called Majority Report and here they are in conversation with each other talking specifically about a recent AT&T case that made it to the Supreme Court A couple called Vincent and Lisa Concepcion tried to sue AT&T for false advertising because they claimed that they were giving away cell phones for free, but in fact they charged in the region of $30, which they claimed was the sales tax on their giveaway. The Concepcion sued because they said this was not announced in the advertising and that it was only $30 for an expensive item. I mean, if they'd been offering a chocolate bar and then charged you $30 sales tax, probably the whole country would have been up in arms. But still, they collected enough $30 from enough people that it actually should have been made clear that that was a part of the contract that you were entering into with them. Of course, for one couple to go up against a huge organisation such as AT&T, over $30 was practically impossible, but in addition to inserting an arbitration clause, AT&T had also managed to circumvent any class action suit, which meant that this couple couldn't band together with other couples who'd been somewhat underhandedly stripped of $30
1: plus. So let's talk about AT&T versus Concepcion because that to me was one of those cases that gets very very little attention in particularly any type of mass media but it had such huge implications because it struck at the heart of why class action suits are so invaluable to consumers because for 32 bucks or whatever it was no one's going to do anything about this But when you have hundreds of thousands of people who get basically robbed of 32 bucks or whatever it was, then all of a sudden you'll see some type of action. So walk us through this AT&T Concepcion case
2: case that the Supreme Court heard in 2011 was brought by this couple, the Concepciones, who had sued at and in California because the company had engaged in all this deceptive advertising and essentially had shortchanged millions of consumers out of around $30 each. So it's something that, you know, it's not like a massive, egregious thing that is depriving people of deep fundamental rights, but it's still something that a corporation is milking money out of consumers just because it has the power to. So what they tried to do was they tried to litigate as a class. They found all these other people who had also been shortchanged and tried to band together. What happened was AT&T in their contract had inserted something called a class ban that prohibited consumers from coming together. Now, California, along with many other states, had just prohibited these kinds of class bans. They recognized that class action bans would preclude people from bringing any cases. And so they said, nope, companies can't insert this. What the Supreme Court ended up doing was they basically overturned those state laws. They upheld AT&T's right to insert class bans, which is important also just there's a huge states' rights argument to be made here, because ultimately you're, you're seeing what the Supreme Court is allowing companies to do is override state laws that try to protect their own citizens. So you do see a way in which this is really hurting just the ability of states to make laws and uphold their own laws.
1: I mean, so the people understand this is essentially saying you still have a right to sue AT&T, but just not in a way that really you can practically do it. This is basically saying, like, uh, abortion's legal, but we're going to outlaw every abortion clinic for the next 2,000 miles from where you live. So would would the Supreme Court have upheld a federal statute that said you can't have class action bans or no?
2: Um, Given how grossly they've expanded the reading, it's, it's anybody's guess. I mean, thankfully, it hasn't come to that being tested. But I think it is gonna take some kind of congressional action to reassert the idea that arbitration was really only intended to be used in these really isolated circumstances or, you know, there are instances in which, say, workers or consumers might choose to arbitrate. There are cases in which it makes sense to arbitrate. But the idea that companies should be able to foist these upon us in these contracts that aren't even really contracts. It's not like we're sitting down with AT&T or American Express and deciding the terms over this agreement. They're, they're just being handed to us. And they're being imposed on us by parties with immense market power, with immense bargaining power. And so the idea that this should be able to effectively erode our ability to bring our cases uphold our rights is a really big deal.
0: It sure is. You're tuned to The Sharon now with me Sharon James on Laguna's KX935. I'm talking tonight about monopolies and the fact that we are allowing these monopolies and it's a dangerous thing in a democracy to let companies and institutions become so large that they can basically dictate all the terms. This entire country was built on the idea of checks and balances and no one institution being allowed to get all powerful. And yet we have a couple of institutions like Amazon and Google that are getting dangerously close to making us entirely dependent on them. And along the way, eliminating competition Without proper control, this is a big threat to democracy. And one woman, Dina Khan, a young woman, as recently as last year, simply a law student at Yale Law, wrote a paper in the Yale Law Journal titled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. She argued that a company like Amazon should not get a pass on anti-competitive behavior just because it made customers happy. She said, once we've marginalized monopoly laws, a company like Amazon can amass the kind of structural power that lets it exert increasing control over many parts of the economy. She cited the fact that Amazon has so much data on so many customers and is so willing to forgo profits at this stage and has so many advantages from its shipping and warehouse infrastructure, and is so aggressive that it exerts an influence that's much broader than its particular market share, which is pretty huge in all events. She compared it to the all powerful railroads of the progressive era. She wrote, quote, the thousands of retailers and independent businesses that must ride Amazon's rails to reach market are increasingly dependent on their biggest competitor. Her paper was a bestseller in the world of legal treatises. According to this article in the New York Times by David Streitfeld, it got over 100,000 hits, which is huge for a treatise, and spawned quite a few detractors. Two former FTC members, a former chairman and a general counsel, published their own paper reminding everyone of what happened to the A&P grocery chain which became the leading retailer of its era, maintaining its own factories and eliminating middlemen, which allowed it to keep costs down and sell to the consumer for less than others. It was so rigorously pursued by the government on antitrust grounds that it finally shut its doors for good. So the point they were trying to make was, if we let the government go after Amazon in the same way, be careful, we will lose Amazon in the process. It has to be said, though, that the authors of this paper did own up to the fact that they got funding from Amazon to tell their story, and that it had also been advising Amazon on a variety of antitrust issues. Interestingly enough, Lena Khan has just been hired as a temporary advisor to a new Federal Trade Commissioner, which bodes well for future legal enforcements, hopefully, But it does bring up the point that even Congress is siding with the legal community to push people into arbitration rather than lawsuits. And it's problematic. All those things that we sign, I agree on the internet. We're basically agreeing to arbitration. If we have any problems with any of these online retailers... Even the Supreme Court has been deciding in favor of monopolies and ruling against regular lawsuits in favor of arbitration and also clamping down on class action suits, which limits the liability of the company to perform properly and conscientiously. Because with arbitration cases, even if the company loses, the details aren't made public. So those companies can just pay somebody off and not correct the situation in a larger way. Nobody gets to hear what the problem was and be outraged at what corporation did if indeed they did do something that wasn't exactly above board. They can just pay a little fine and go on doing it. Nobody's any the wiser. So even though I don't like a litigious society, there are times when these class action suits are very valuable because they can expose a huge and powerful company's wrongdoings and even if just for financial reasons, it makes them correct an unfair situation for all of us consumers. Dina Khan has been very vocal about all this. And here again, reprised on tonight's KX935's The Share-In Hour, is Khan in conversation with Majority Report's Sam Cedar.
2: As we all know, there was this big data hack at Target that had really bad security, and thousands and thousands of customers had their personal data stolen, and the ramifications of that were huge. As a result of that, a lot of consumers banded together and sued Target, and there are all these class-action lawsuits, and they're being consolidated, and so now a public judge is going to hear the case. Uh, We're all going to see what documents come out of it. The evidence is going to be public, and we're all going to be able to see whether justice gets done. If the exact same thing happened at Amazon, which, by the way, has far more customers and and credit card information, it has like 230 million customer accounts, if the exact same thing happened at Amazon, the result would be radically different. So because of these recent Supreme Court cases, Amazon has inserted something in its contract called a binding arbitration clause coupled with a class ban. So if anything happened to consumers, they would not be able to sue Amazon in a traditional sense, nor would they be able to band together. So if any of us you know, had a grievance against Amazon, if our bank accounts were wiped clean because of insecure data protection, we would instead have to resort to a private arbitrator that would be chosen by Amazon. None of the evidence would end up being public. There would be no public record of what happened. So it's just a situation in which you see that these court cases have emboldened companies to insert certain terms in their contracts that are leading to drastically different outcomes.
1: And we should say, obviously, Amazon is not alone in this. We're just using them as an example. We should also say that when we talk about contracts, what we are ultimately talking about is just that little button that you click on and say, I agree, which none of us ever read when we sign up for these things. And which we're really forced
0: into signing. We're not given an option if we need that service. Or as seems to happen more and more, somebody requires us to Take on that service, enforce their own contracts that they have with us. You are listening to the Sharon Hour and me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. Tonight, exploring the all powerful and increasing power of huge monopolies. A side effect of allowing these monopolies to exist and ignoring cartel laws is it seemingly abrogates our right to have a go at these humongous corporations if and when they abuse us as consumers. And I'm currently playing you a conversation between an advocate for our consumer rights in these concerns, Lina Kahn, and Majority Reports' Sam Seder. Earlier, they were discussing the case of an individual consumer, actually a married couple called Vincent and Lisa Concepcion, who went up against AT&T for deceptive advertising. They got charged around $30 for a phone that was supposed to be
1: contractually free. I mean, you can't go in for $32, right? I mean, it's just not practical to take this case because no lawyer is going to take that case, even if it's above, let's say, what a small claims court would do. It's still, in many respects, not practical to go up against a corporation of that size who particularly might not want a precedent set, and they're going to throw everything at you, and it's just so unbalanced at that point. And people should understand that there is, in fact, a legal principle of terms in a contract being so one-sided that it's unconscionable and cannot be upheld.
2: Yeah, there is this legal term called unconscionable that describes contracts that so favor the party with the superior bargaining power that it's considered not even a contract because it's something that's just being imposed on you rather than you agreeing to it. So yeah, that's exactly right. This legal concept already exists, but in this instance, we're seeing how the courts are not really paying attention to it. And,
1: and that was that AT&T case was a five Five, 4 split, and that becomes, I guess, the new watershed, really, is that we're seeing these uh, last cases, which are, are snuffing out uh, our ability to bring these type of class actions, seems to be falling on a 5-4 split. And people should understand that this applies not just to consumer contracts, but also to employee contracts. And so every corporation in the country is going to put these clauses into their contracts, and the individual is just not going to have the bargaining power to eliminate
2: these clauses. That's exactly right. And I think some of the biggest harms we see are in the contracts between companies and employees. And this is Something that's being used across the board. I mean, Goldman Sachs is including this in its contracts with workers. Uh, we're seeing Uber include it. We're seeing Pia Changs. You know, so it's really corporations across the spectrum. And it was interesting in the days after these decisions, both the AT&T and American Express case, you saw law firms around the country blast out these advisories to their corporate clients that was basically saying. It's time for you guys to change the fine print. Before then, a lot of states had had these class action bans. And after these cases, it was clear that corporations could get away with inserting them.
0: You're tuned to The Sharon now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My topic tonight is monopolies and how they're getting so huge and so powerful that a lot of our rights established over the past decades are being eroded and now so big that even our highest courts tend to accede to them. They are writing clauses into our contract that deny us our ability to sue them as a group, which effectively denies us our ability to sue them because we, unless we're millionaires, can't do it individually. It's something we should all be concerned about. And thankfully, we have an advocate in a young, recently graduated law student who's made it her business to bring this to light
2: cases are now extremely expensive to bring because they require a lot of economic analysis, a lot of kind of expertise and it's essentially impossible for you to bring one unless you have a lot of money or unless you're able to kind of band together with other people. There is a case brought by this guy called Alan Carlson who owns an Italian restaurant in California and he had been doing business with American Express. What American Express had been doing was it started introducing these new cards with much higher fees and was kind of tying its products together in a way that was forcing him because he was taking one car to take many other ones with much more onerous terms. So that's considered, for the most part, a violation of antitrust laws, so he tried to bring an antitrust case. So he found other independent businesses who had also been subject to these terms from American Express and tried to band together. American Express pointed to this class action ban in his contract. He came back and pointed out, hey, you know, unless I band together as a class, we have no way to even bring this case because it's so expensive. And so that's the case that the Supreme Court ended up hearing and ended up ruling that even though your inability to band together as a class means that you can't bring this case, we're still going to uphold the class action ban. And it was really amazing to read because the judges or the majority of the court is essentially saying, it's okay for these rights to only exist in theory. Yes, these laws exist on the book and they give you these rights, but it's okay if you can just point to them on paper, but you can't bring them in court, you can't effectively vindicate them, that's okay. And it was just a really radical decision that We're empowering monopolies not only to impose these terms on us, but we're also giving them the ability to get away with abusing their market power.
1: And so the courts acknowledge that a class action may be the only practical way for you to bring this case, but we don't care. This arbitration clause trumps all.
2: Yeah. It's it's the perfect culmination of this trend where we've been seeing the court eliminate courts as a way for ordinary Americans to bring lawsuits you know in America's legal tradition our right to sue was essentially born of a deep skepticism of concentrated power so you know we recognized early on that if we only relied on government to protect our legal rights that would leave us massively exposed partly because you know government officials are so vulnerable to being corrupt and being bought up by powerful interests so the idea that all Americans should have the right to sue was basically just a way to guarantee that the laws that were passed we would actually be able to enforce. So that was the thinking, and we see it enshrined in, say, the Seventh Amendment, which gives us the right to a jury trial. There's an ancient tradition that basically says, if individuals have the right to sue, you're going to see laws be enforced more rigorously. And then in the late 19th century, we started seeing more court cases, partly because we saw corporate activity rise. And so Congress in 1925 passed something called the Federal Arbitration Act, which basically recognized a limited use of arbitration essentially as a way for businesses and business partners to speedily resolve disputes. We started seeing the court cases rise, and you didn't want to always be caught up in that queue. And it's really important to note that at that time, a lot of congressmen were very skeptical of this thing called arbitration, and they were very aware that if it was used in the wrong way between, say, parties of unequal bargaining power, it would eviscerate rights. So they were very wary, and they passed it so it could only be used between parties of equal bargaining power, so essentially businesses or business partners, they emphasize that arbitration should not be something that was used to determine the outcome of laws. It would really only be used to settle contracts. So basically, if you and I have written a contract together, you know, we are, we're both coming to the table with more or less equal bargaining power, and then say you know, in, a, in a couple of weeks you do something that I think has violated that contract, we can go to an arbitrator and ask the arbitrator to interpret our contract, the document that you and I wrote. That's very different from, say, if I am your employee and I think you stole wages from me or you know, are, are discriminating against me and I think you broke the law. Then if you and I go to an arbitrator that you chose and are asking the arbitrator to interpret the law, it's very different to ask somebody to interpret a document, a contract that you and I wrote, versus interpret the law. What we've now allowed arbitration to become is basically a way for private judges to rule on public law, which is really not anything that arbitration was intended for.
0: And a big reason for that is the lack of transparency in private arbitration cases, whereas lawsuits, and particularly class action ones, are made very public and thereby put the corporation, no matter how large, on probation to a certain extent with the mass consumer, not to mention severely affects their pocketbooks, where it seems to hurt most you're tuned to the Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX nine three five, and playing you an interchange between Lena Khan, a recent law graduate who's written a very well-respected and much-read treatise on how we're pushing antitrust law under the carpet and allowing corporations to become huge and monopolistic. This is an interview she did with Majority Reports, Sam Cedar. And thank goodness we have somebody agitating about this because it is quite recent and frightening example of an erosion of consumer rights.
2: Some of the biggest suits that we've seen over the last few decades that were ultimately brought by the government actually drew a whole lot of material from private cases. The huge tobacco settlement that grew out of thousands of, of private cases, you know, even more recently, some of the big cases against Bank of America, the material for that case that the government brought stemmed from private cases. And I think that's actually one of the most dangerous things about arbitration is that it privatizes all this information. One of the great things about public courts is that all the information that comes out is accessible for everybody to see. With arbitrators, even if a company admits that it's done wrong, none of that information is accessible to anybody else. So government wouldn't be able to look at a case and be like, oh, oh, this looks like it actually affected thousands or millions of people. So I think the way in which arbitration is actually even probably diminishing the ability of government to bring cases. It's huge.
1: When we say about evidence coming public, even if the case is lost, there are reams of documents that are exposed in the context of depositions and in the discovery phase of a case that can then be built upon later. Like you say, the the Bank of America case, I think that was brought by the New York uh, attorney general, I think it was that case, was very much founded upon documents And evidence that came out in the course of multiple private suits.
2: Exactly. Yeah, the tobacco one is a great example because plaintiffs filed over 800 suits against tobacco companies and pretty much lost all of them over a course of 40 years. But even though they lost them, what it ended up doing was bringing reams of internal documents from companies into the public domain. So even though individuals lost gave public enforcers enough material that state attorneys general ended up filing a much, much, much bigger and much stronger case and ended up getting a $206 billion settlement that also ended up imposing huge changes across the industry. And as you mentioned, the big case against Bank of America and uh, and other big banks about wrongful mortgage foreclosure is another example where we saw a lot of private documents come in the public domain through private cases.
1: And we see this also in the context of pharmaceutical cases. We see this in the context of environmental cases where government regulation becomes, at the very least, part of the basis of these private suits. And so there is a, a symbiotic relationship between these things.
2: Exactly. And I think it should also be said that in many instances, you don't actually even have to sue. I mean, one of the things is that the threat of litigation can often be a really powerful deterrent. So if a company knows that it could be faced with a huge suit, a lot of publicity, or a lot of its documents being revealed, that act as a powerful deterrent. And I think one of the most insidious things is that corporations are essentially becoming immunized from swaths of the law. And what that does psychologically, what that does in terms of whether they're even discouraged from breaking laws from abusing their power in the first place, I think that's something we should also really think about.
1: And and I would add to that, when you are facing the potential of a jury award, it's far less predictable in terms of the size than it would be if you were just looking at a government fine, right? And that increases sort of the self-policing effect Uh, on corporations when they come to decide you know we're going to cut this corner we're going to cut that corner in terms of consumer or workplace safety because at the end of the day if we have to pay a government fine that's just sort of the cost of doing business and we can make that cost benefit analysis right there whereas if we have trouble anticipating What a jury award could be, because people sometimes are far more sensitive to these type of shenanigans than than the government would be, uh, that impacts the behavior of these corporations
2: extensively. And, you know, what arbitration also does is it lets you just pay off individual by individual, but continue screwing people over at large, whereas if you had a class action or a bigger government case having to step up in the public court, it would eradicate the practice One of the biggest differences between an arbitrator and a public judge is who pays for them. So, judges are paid from public taxes that we all pay arbitrators are paid by the people retaining them, which oftentimes end up being the company that is choosing the arbitrator in the first place. So just at a very basic level, the incentives look very different for an arbitrator. And there have been cases and studies that find that arbitrators end up being biased. Not all arbitrators are like that. I mean, some of the biggest companies doing arbitration nowadays, AAA and and JAMS, are considered to be more fair in that regard. But there was a a big case that uh, the Attorney General of Minnesota brought that was finding that the biggest arbitrators were just routinely siding with companies because of their financial incentives.
1: Right. I mean, the, the analogy I would draw is those rating agencies. You can decide which rating agency, if you're an investment bank, you're going to try and uh, grade your securities, and you're just not going to go back to the one that doesn't give you the A. right?
2: Yep. That's a perfect analogy for what's going on here in terms of incentives.
1: So what can we do about this? Because I feel like we're just on the cusp of seeing the implications of this, that it's only going to get worse, that more companies are going to be finding that this is a great way for them to mitigate any potential downside to abusing employees, abusing consumers, abusing their monopoly power. What can we do?
2: So basically all falls to Congress at this point for the most part. I mean, you know, the CFPB is doing a study right now and they have some ability to restrict how arbitration clauses are used in financial contracts. But so when it comes to things like employment, consumer, civil rights cases, it's going to come down to Congress. There have been some instances in which they included a little rider here or a little rider in that bill limiting how arbitration can be used, say, against, you know, form of Service members. So in isolated instances, it's something that Congress had tried to address, but we really haven't seen any action or any widespread support for that in Congress right now, the height of attention that it deserves.
1: I mean, I think this is one of those areas where people are just not sensitive to the implications of something like the Supreme Court makeup for something like this. This seems to me to be like one of those perfect examples of why the Supreme Court is important in ways that I think most Americans have absolutely no consciousness of.
2: Absolutely, and I think most of this has been framed as a question of, you know, do Americans sue too much or do they not sue too much? You know, there's this huge meme around frivolous litigation. But at the end of the day, this isn't really about whether we can all get our $30 back for a company screwing us over once in a while. The stakes are much, much bigger. It's basically about whether laws get enforced, whether the laws that Congress or elected leaders are passing, whether corporations have to abide by them. So it's a much bigger question it's really about the rule of law and whether really essentially Laws like minimum wage, you know, bans on racial discrimination, checks on monopolies, these huge laws get enforced or not.
0: Corporations being allowed to get huge and monopolising their rights over ours was the topic of my Share Hour tonight. If you want to hear this show again, you can do so on iTunes or go to kx935.com slash shows slash the dash sharing dash hour. That's sharing without the G, hour with the H. Do stay tuned for more on KX935, including emergency alerts, where our airwaves won't fail you when your cell phones might. Meanwhile, this is Sharon James, wishing you a great week ahead. Join me next Sunday. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.